says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship by just submitting our heart and soul and mind and spirit to the truth and the authority of your inspired word. Lord, help us to have an ear to hear what the Spirit wants to say to this part of your church this morning through the Word of God that you've given to us. Lord, breathe fresh life upon these verses and soften our hearts and let us hear what you're trying to say to us collectively and individually. We ask that you'd speak, Lord, and bless your Word and prepare our hearts particularly as we partake of communion afterwards. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, hopefully with the recent celebration this past week of Thanksgiving, you were able, I hope, to reflect upon at least one or a few things to be thankful for. Uh, Actually, this Wednesday night prior to the Thanksgiving uh, holiday, we talked particularly about thankfulness and what God's Word has to say about that. And if you need a little help, even in regards to that post-Thanksgiving, you can always go back and listen to that online and uh, reconcile, maybe finding a few things to be thankful to God for, if that would be helpful. Uh, You know, maybe you were thankful for just the fact that you have your health this year, and maybe you didn't last year. Maybe you're thankful for certain things that God had done throughout the past year. Uh, Some of you maybe have, in a sense, realized how thankful you were to be able to see some people you haven't seen in a while, maybe to spend some time with loved ones. Uh, Others of you, though you probably wouldn't say out loud, may actually be thankful that you may not have to see certain individuals till Christmas again. Uh, And sometimes that kind of happens. After the day is over, you kind of thank the Lord that there's at least a month uh, until maybe you might see that particular individual again. Well, look, in case you overlooked uh, something to be thankful for, I want to emphasize one thing this morning. During our time together in the midst of this Thanksgiving, if you would, holiday weekend as we move towards Christmas, that we should all be thankful for as human beings universally. So if you're a note taker, I want you to get out a pen and I want you to jot this down. You ready? It starts with a capital J and then there's an E and then there's an S. You get where I'm going with this? And then there's a U.S. afterwards. If there is one thing universally Regardless of what is the current situation in your life, in my circumstances, that we should always honestly have tremendous gratitude for and be extremely thankful about, it is what God has done for us and supplied for us through his son, Jesus Christ. 
Certainly something to always be a person of some level of appreciation about. Well, Paul in these verses in front of us this morning, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, has been focusing on the love of Jesus. He talked about how the love of Christ just compels us and drives us onward. And then he began to talk about this wonderful thing of how the death and the resurrection of Jesus now gives us the opportunity to have someone to live our life for, uh, that we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we can live for the Lord. And listen, in this generation, that's an important message because a lot of people, it seems more and more, are feeling the need to just escape and give up on life and end their own lives because they say, I have nothing to live for. Well, look, even if you don't have a reason to live for yourself, God offers you a reason to live. live, live for Jesus. That is a reason to live. Maybe sometimes we don't find any more reason to live for ourselves. But Paul says we can live for Jesus in this chapter. That gives us something to live our life for. So he's been talking about this reality of what God has provided to us through Christ. And he just declared a marvelous New Testament promise. Many of us know it in verse 17, if you'll glance back. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. So this marvelous New Testament promise that being in a relationship with Jesus Christ allows us to experience a brand new life, a do-over, a fresh start. And how many of us in this room appreciate above all the other things that very reality about what it means to truly be a Christian, to know Jesus, to have been born again by the Spirit. And that's what the Bible speaks of, how when we come to Jesus Christ and accept him as Savior and Lord, we experience a conversion or a spiritual birth. The idea is like a baby begins a brand new life. You get a brand new life. You get a do-over. As the Spirit of God comes into your life and you have this opportunity now to no longer be who you once were, but to live out this new life, this new experience and new existence, to live in a different way, to be actually a brand new person. You're not the old person that you were. Don't ever let yourself believe that or the devil tell you that. You're not just some old renovated individual. You are a brand new person. That's New Testament theology. You are not who you once were. That's not who you are anymore. That identity does not exist anymore. That label does not exist anymore. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Romans 6 says because our lives are united with Christ, we can now live in newness of life. Now, this is a marvelous reality. And Paul, going on from that in verse 18, says this. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word, the message, the ideas of reconciliation. So these verses, verse 18 and 19, speak to us of one of the important doctrines in the New Testament. We might refer to this as the doctrine of reconciliation. 
the doctrine of reconciliation, whereby holy God, righteous God, can offer to sinful humanity the opportunity to have a standing that is acceptable before him, to have access into heaven, relationship with him, and to actually experience what even we just read and talked briefly about there in verse 17. How does someone have the opportunity, given what they were in their past, to completely set aside everything from their past, and it doesn't just still exist under the kind of covering of of what's good, it's gone. How does someone no longer have that identity, have that label, be that individual, that old individual is dead and gone and eliminated and have the opportunity to be a brand new person in Jesus Christ? How does that opportunity come together with all the other things that God offers in reconciling us to himself? Well, Paul begins, verse 18, declaring to us who is truly responsible for this spiritual experience that we refer to as salvation. That is, who really deserves the credit and the glory? Well, look what he says, verse 18. All things are of God. The last thing he said, notice in verse 17, was all things have become new for us. And as Paul says, all things have become new, he then says, where do those things come from? He says, all those things, they're of God. All those things are of God. That's how things that are old pass away and new things come into our lives spiritually. The point Paul is getting to is that salvation is genuinely a work of God. It's a miracle of God provided by God for us and performed by God within us. 2 Timothy 1.9 says it this way, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Again, if you read Ephesians chapter 2 and you look at the passage of Scripture there, chapter 2, verse 1 through 9 or 10, there's this glorious New Testament passage as well that describes the doctrine of the incredible miracle of God's salvation. In the first few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul paints this dark black canvas. He says, look, we were dead in trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life within us. There was no way we could have an experience with God because we were sinful before God and guilty. And he says, we were following the course of this world. We were under the power of the devil himself. The prince of the power of the air was controlling us. Whether we realized it or not, we were a spiritual slave and we were under the wrath of God. And he paints this dark, horrible picture. And then he says around verse four, but God, who is rich, in his mercy and his love wherewith he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And he begins to describe this incredible experience that God has created for us from this dark black canvas, this beautiful picture of the story of the redemption of God in a life to save us, to forgive us, to set us free from sin's power, and to set us free from the judgment of the wrath of God that we deserved and give us a heavenly position. And the reason we enjoy experience all these benefits is because of what God did for us in Christ Jesus, his son, 2,000 years ago and past, and what God now does for us, any one of us, if we simply embrace what Jesus did for us by accepting it for ourselves in faith. Again, listen to how Titus describes it in chapter 3. Titus says, For we ourselves, listen, we're in this category, were also once foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If you don't find yourself in there, you're not being honest. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now look, in order for all of these glorious things to happen, God had to accomplish one of the greatest plans and works of reconciliation that has ever existed in time and eternity. And this is what God did for us and what Paul here is reflecting upon in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in our verses, the wonder of what God did in this ministry of reconciliation between himself as holy God and you and I as sinful people on this earth. You notice just by the reading of it when we read it together this morning, five times in these verses, there's direct reference to reconciliation or being reconciled. Five times that he continues to emphasize this word. And again, the word reconciliation by definition, please take note, this is what reconciliation means. It's the process of restoring harmony, peace, and friendship to an estranged or separated relationship. The process of restoring harmony, peace, and friendship to an estranged or separated relationship. This is what God has judicially accomplished, providing reconciliation, we might say terms, for anyone in humanity. God has provided reconciliation terms for every human being in the world. And God also provides the reconciliation process for any person who's willing to receive those peace treaty terms by coming to Jesus Christ and accepting what God's offer. So let's see first in verse 19 particularly how God, if you would, in the broad picture, judicially accomplished reconciliation terms for the whole world. How did God provide reconciliation terms for the entire sinful world? Well, verse 19 says that God was in Christ. Consider that God was in Christ because Jesus Christ was God incarnate. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. See, the reason God had to initiate reconciliation is because the world, all of humanity, we all had a problem. And that problem stems right from the creation of mankind in the Garden of Eden. You can read about it in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Of course, we know God creates Adam, the first man. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. God put him in a paradise existence. God and Adam had perfect harmony, friendship, relationship, experience, exactly the way God wanted to have with humanity, with each person. But remember, God gave Adam one prohibition because God wanted relationship harmonious relationship not a robotic forced mechanical you must obey god wanted relationship so god gave him one prohibition adam of all the trees in the garden you can eat but he says but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil he said you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die well, of course we know what happened adam fell prey to temptation and, and, and chose to sin which is disobeying god and he partook 
And as the result of that, Adam, if you would experience what God said, death entered into the world. That is physical death. Adam would now die physically as a human being. But worse, spiritual death. That is the death of that harmonious relationship that Adam once experienced with God as his creator. Because as soon as Adam disobeys God and sins, just like God said, consequently that disobedience severed his relationship with God. The lights went out, if you would, spiritually, because what's the next thing you see Adam doing? Now he's hiding from God. He's walking around in harmony with God, and now all of a sudden he's hiding from God, and he's covering himself because he feels a sense of guilt, and Adam's going, God's walking around saying to Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding from me now? Well, because something was lost. He lost that relationship that he had with God. It had now become estranged between him and God. Romans 5.12 says, though through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death has spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, the Bible teaches as a result of Adam representing the human race and everyone would be born from Adam's seed. We ultimately all have the same descendant. That every one of us being born naturally, physically of Adam would experience only what Adam could pass on to us. That is physical life, which would ultimately end in death. And that happens to every one of us. But worse than that, the absence of spiritual life, the absence of the ability to have perfect relationship with God, because Adam became spiritually dead and lost that he could not pass it on to us. And so we inherit physical life and end up dying physically, but we also inherit, if you would, being spiritually dead and not starting out life in relationship with God. That needs to happen as God gives it back to us through reconciliation. Adam's decision caused all of us to be born of him, to be alienated from God because of human sin. Again, God is holy. And by nature, if you were honest and haven't yet noticed, we are all sinful. We all make mistakes. There's no person who doesn't fail in thought or word or deed. We, we all sin at some point in different times in different ways, and that sin separates us from God. Our sin keeps us from being in relationship with a holy and a righteous God. That's a major problem. But the good news is it's a problem that God didn't leave unaddressed. It's a problem that God directly addressed in his amazing love. God initiated and prepared, if you would, a peace treaty to offer reconciliation, as it says in verse 19, to the whole world. God established the terms, being holy, sin-creating separation, caused us to be estranged, and not only estranged, but if we were to fully understand the impact of it from a doctrinal perspective, sin not only caused us to be estranged from God, but worse yet, the Bible teaches to us, God says to us, our sin didn't just break harmony, it actually caused us to be direct enemies of God himself and all of his holiness and his righteousness. Romans chapter five says to us that our sin brought such great offense that before we were reconciled to God, our sin actually made us his enemies. So it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm not friendly with God. God says that we actually were his enemies spiritually. That was God's direct reference of us. Again, we take notice in verse 19, he talks about the word trespasses, not imputing their trespasses through what God has done. The idea of a trespass is violating a law or a boundary. And we've all trespassed against God's laws. That is, we're all lawbreakers, every single one of us. To some degree and at different times, we have all broken the holy laws of God and that makes us offensive to God and viewed as his enemies. And again, just as people in general 
you know, if we were to be realistic, we all to some degree struggle with living in rebellion to God. Everybody does. By nature, we are rebels. We are, tend to gravitate towards doing what's wrong and rebellious at times and resisting God and rebelling against God's ways. And the problem of humanity is we're the offending party. We're the guilty ones in violation. Yet, God did not just declare war against his enemies on this earth and bring down his wrath and destroy us powerfully. Instead, the Bible tells us that God and his love did not want that condition and he took the initiative to prepare terms of a peace treaty to offer us reconciliation in our lives. You might want to write in your notes. If you are a note taker, Romans chapter five, verses eight through 11. Let me read you those verses. It says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall now be saved by Jesus's life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Look, it is critical, folks, that we always understand someone had to pay the costly price uh, to make appeasement for our grievous violation against the king of kings and his kingdom. Don't ever think somehow that God just kind of, you know, he kind of just decided to overlook sin. They just, well, I mean, yeah, all right. I mean, just, all right, we're just going to overlook that. We're going to do, we're just going to let that go. We'll let it slide. God can't do that. He's a just, righteous judge. No just judge can have a clear criminal with evidence of violation and crimes come into his courtroom and be a just judge and say, all right, well, you were having a bad day. And yes, you murdered three people, but it was a bad day. Everybody has a bad That's not a just judge. God's a righteous and a just judge. Someone has to be punished if you're going to execute justice. So God could not just overlook sin and just what God did was God resolved the problem of sin. And the way that God resolved the problem was to allow Jesus, his own son, to make the payment for the punishment, to take the punishment on our behalf. Jesus' blood, if you would, settled the terms and his blood is now the peace treaty that God offers to human sinful people. It tells us in Colossians chapter one, it pleased the father that in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. That is the fullness of God. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things back to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. I mean, it's an incredible thing. This marvelous New Testament mystery, I love when the word sh- the phrase shows up in the New Testament, God our Savior. Do you realize about saying God our Savior? God didn't just send a Savior. God didn't just offer a plan to be saved. God became our Savior. That is the God who I spit in the face of, the God who I rebelled against, the God who at times in your life you have done grievous things to sin against and to offend. That God became your salvation so that you could be forgiven so that you could be reconciled back to him 
to offer that to us, this incredible love. That's why he says here, it was God that was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against him. That is, God, if you would, found a just way to be just and the justifier of those who believe, the Bible says, to remove the responsibility of our sinful punishment that we deserve by not accounting it or imputing it to us because he paid for it perfectly through Jesus. That's how he can not cause it to be upon our account and to allow us to be released from it. First Timothy 2 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, this is God's universal plan accomplished and available to all to provide the terms of reconciliation for any person. But then Paul applies it personally in verse 18 of what's available, that there's a process of reconciliation that has to come to pass for each person. He says, verse 18, all things are of God who has reconciled. He personalizes it now for himself and his readers who's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Paul's reflecting on his own salvation experience. To the believers he's writing to, he's saying, look, God offered reconciliation to the whole world. He's made a way for the whole world. Anybody can be reconciled now to God because of what he did in this perfect peace treaty plan of reconciliation through Jesus and the terms of the blood that Christ shed to pay for our sins. And he says, but then he reconciled us. Us. Personally, you specifically, the terms of the peace treaty were established and signed by God through the blood of Christ, yet we all each still must at some point choose to accept the terms of the peace treaty. See, if there's a war between two nations, peace treaty can be offered by one side, but if the other side refuses the peace treaty, then the terms don't come to pass. There's no experience of peace. One side has to accept the terms of the peace treaty in order to experience peace and reconciliation. And until we do, we remain enemies of God in a sinful, guilty state and will be separated from God not only now, but when we die, we'll be separated from God eternally. In a place where people go, the lake of fire or hell, that don't want to be in relationship with God. He doesn't force them to go to heaven. And he allows them to experience the just punishment of their sin if they don't want to receive what God offers through Jesus. So at some point, we must personally understand the reality of our own condition, that we are sinful. There's no difference. There's none righteous, no, not one. We must realize, I am guilty. God, I am your enemy. It's true. I, I, I have become an enemy of you because of my own personal sinfulness. I was born this way and I realize it now. And God, I understand the terms. I'm completely guilty. I have no right to be in relationship with you. I don't deserve to get to go to heaven. And God, I am facing the judgment of hell and damnation, but I understand that you so love this world that you sent your son Jesus and he came and he died on the cross taking my punishment for my sins and he rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin to control me and the power of death to consume me and now God I can be freed of my guilt and I can have a brand new life through the power of your son Jesus and his resurrected life and you have to be willing once you finally grasp that for yourself and the spirit of God convicts and solidifies that in your heart to wave the little white flag of surrender which is usually the hardest part in a peace treaty 
is for somebody to say, I surrender. I surrender to that. I can't win this war I'm losing. I give up. I accept your terms of peace. Thank you for offering me peace. Thank you for giving to me what you will. And the way we surrender and enter the peace treaty with God is to be reconciled by coming to faith in Jesus. He says, we've been reconciled. God reconciled us to himself through, verse 18, Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says it directly that we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to come to a place where you can be at peace with God. It's the only way to become at peace with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through being religious. It's not through trying to efforts of doing good. If you could do something good enough, then God would have never done what he did in sending Jesus. God would have never allowed his son to go through. There's nothing we can do. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the only terms available to be at peace with God and forgiven of sin. And the moment we come to personal surrender and graciously receive that as a free gift available to us, we are then reconciled to God. God reconciles us to himself when we surrender and he does it through us coming to Jesus Christ and putting our faith and trust in that and receiving what Jesus offers to us, forgiveness of sins the opportunity to have access into heaven by what he provides to us. Again, you take notice the verses are very clear that we do not reconcile ourselves to God. It says God reconciles us to himself. God has to do it for us because it's not possible we can do it on our own. Well, Paul emphasizes here in the end of verse 18 and 19 and verse 20 as well that as believers, we're now commissioned. Once we receive reconciliation, God also gives us purpose. At the end of verse 18, he says, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he says, he's committed to us the word, the message of reconciliation. And Paul says, verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So not only does God reconcile you into a relationship with him, but then God actually gives you a reason to live out the rest of your life on this earth, to be an ambassador for Christ. And what's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who is chosen and given authority on behalf of a king or a kingdom to be in a foreign land and to speak and to negotiate and to do things to intercede on behalf of the king whom he represents. That's what an ambassador does. And we've now been made ambassadors of Christ. This is God's given to us, verse 18, a ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word, verse 19, the message. We know it now of reconciliation and ambassadors of Christ. God is now using us to plead through us to other people to be reconciled to God. Look, I want to say this morning, as a Christian, God has given to you, if you are saved and reconciled to God, a life purpose. Your life has tremendous purpose. And even sometimes as Christians, you know, we find ourselves kind of like looking for a life purpose. I don't know what the purpose is for my life. I just, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I understand to it, like what job am I supposed to work? And I'm trying to find kind of my identity and what I'm supposed to do. But let me simplify it for you while you're struggling over all that. God has given you a life purpose. Your life purpose, since you've been saved to the moment you breathe your last breath, where Jesus drastically yanks you off this planet is to be an ambassador for Christ. You have a life purpose. So no matter what job you work at, 
Oh, I don't like this job. Should I get another job? That's between you and the Lord. But no matter what job you're at, you're still an ambassador for Christ. No matter where you live or what you're doing, look, all of that stuff is kind of secondary and we're all just trying to exist and eke a living out of this life and try and do the best we can. But your life has a purpose. Your purpose in existence is this, is no matter where you're at, what you're doing, who you're interacting with, is to just keep trying to help reconcile people to God. That's your purpose. And wherever God has you, you don't even have to question it. You're right where you're at right now because God wants to use you and the people you see and interact with day by day. He wants to use you to help people be reconciled to God. The people would come to know Jesus. The people would come back into relationship with God if they've turned away and backslidden to help unbelievers come to understand that they need to be reconciled. That, that's, that's our whole purpose to just be an ambassador to Christ. I love how he just says, God, we're pleading through us. If I were half, anywhere near as sensitive as I should be to the Holy Spirit, I would realize this is what God is trying to do, to plead through my spirit that other people would be reconciled to God. And I'm ashamed to say how little sensitivity I have to the fact of the Holy Spirit, and I wish to God, myself, and for you as well, that he would renew that within us. That God, that's what you're wanting to do with my life, to plead with people. Please, stop living that way. Be reconciled to God. Come into relationship with Jesus that God would want to use us. It's an amazing privilege to consider that God would even do such an incredible thing. And to think as well, the terms there, God, we're pleading through us. Pleading? That God would condescend and plead with sinful people? God pleading for us? I mean, it's an amazing thing, the, the incredible love of God. That's why that one song we sing, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Imagine God himself pleading with people, please, I want to be in a relationship with you. Even though you're doing what you're doing, or even though you've done all you've done, I want to be in a relationship with you. I mean, just an amazing concept of the great, great love of God. Paul then concludes in verse 21 with this beautiful summary of Christ's substitutionary work for us. He says, for God made him, that is, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here in verse 21 is a clear description in one verse, we see it throughout the Bible, of what we often call the vicarious death of Jesus. It's not a term we use a whole lot, but it's a very good term, the vicarious death of Jesus. The word vicarious, let me read you the definition. It means serving instead of someone else. Something performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another. That's what Jesus did for us. He died vicariously. He begins by speaking of Jesus' sinless life in verse 21 by saying that Jesus knew no sin. In his humanities, he came and he lived out as a man. Jesus knew no sin. He had no familiarity at all with anything sinful. I mean, it's, it's just hard to even comprehend in our own humanity that Jesus had no familiarity with anything to be selfish. He, he didn't know what it meant to do anything wrong. 
All he knew was how to do what was right and to refuse what was wrong. Hebrews 14 says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. That means Jesus faced every temptation that you and I also face, but he never failed. He never gave in to it. He never selfishly succumbed to it to satisfy himself or to be mean or, you know, never. He never sinned. I can't imagine what it was like with his family and their humanity trying to live with him. Again, remember, imagine his brothers. He did have siblings, the Bible tells us. Joseph and Mary conceived children afterwards. Can you imagine them trying to goad their brother to get him to do something wrong? As kids do, you know, just try and, and never. He'd always still be polite. He'd always still do what was righteous. He never gave in to any temptation to the most severe degree. 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin. But see, that sinless life was necessary to be the perfect substitute to satisfy what God requires to enter heaven because we can't provide it ourselves. So he lived sinlessly and then his sacrificial death is what's described when it says in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That is, Jesus bore the sin of the entire world. That's what Isaiah 53 speaks to us about. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So imagine this. The sinless, innocent son of God who never did anything wrong ended up being the one who in a substitutionary way took the punishment in his humanity for the sin, not just of me and you and everyone in this room, but the sin of the whole world. I can't even begin to fathom what it must have been like for holy, pure Jesus to have never known any sin and all the filth of the selfish things that humanity has done at one time or another throughout human history in a moment was placed upon Jesus. And then the holy wrath of righteous God was fired down upon him as he was punished, not just for one or two of my failures, but punished for the sin of the whole world. Every single sinful thing that was ever done, Jesus, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became that final sin offering that satisfied perfectly what was required. And Paul tells us why this happened. It says, He who knew no sin became sin for us as he became the sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Describes a great exchange there. We give Jesus all of our sin and he takes it upon himself and is punished and takes it away and then he offers to us all of his holy heavenly righteousness so that we can be completely acceptable before God. And notice it's called the righteousness of God. Do you see that? He gives us the righteousness of God. It's not our own righteousness. If you gravitated back towards trying to provide your own righteousness, stop. It's just filthy rags before God. It's a righteousness received. It's a gift of the righteousness of Jesus so that by your faith alone, you stand righteous. How does he say? In him, in Christ. By faith alone, as you receive that, You become righteous. God gives you a righteous standing through what Jesus did as he exchanges your sin and guilt 
for the righteousness and finished work of his son to give you that righteous acceptance so that we can come to the throne of grace by being in a relationship with him. All the result of being in a relationship with Jesus. Something to be thankful for, would you agree? Something that if you haven't received, forget Black Friday, you're missing the best deal out there. 